Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 14, North Africa and Spain. First off, a new year means new changes, and I have some exciting news regarding The Layman's Historian podcast. We now have an official Layman's Historian Facebook page. I have placed the link in the description below. If you get a chance, leave a like on the page to help the podcast grow. Also, feel free to leave a comment on history in general, or give me feedback on the show itself. Besides the Facebook page, there is also now an official Layman's Historian website. I have uploaded pictures and maps that are relevant to each episode, including the previous episodes, and I have provided links to videos and articles which further elaborate on the topics we discuss. So go check the website out, even if you are all caught up on the episodes. The website will also allow you to connect with the show by contacting me directly with any comments or feedback. Finally, I will also periodically upload resources I use in making the podcast for further recommended reading. I have placed a link in the description, but the web address is www.thelaymanhistorianpodcast.wordpress.com. Let me know what you all think via the Facebook page or the website. I'm really excited about what the new year has in store. Back to business. Last time, we paused in our narrative of the history of Carthage to take an in-depth look at the city, the people, and the soul of Carthage herself. In keeping with this theme, over the next few episodes, we will be taking an overview of the Mediterranean civilizations surrounding Carthage, including both the Romans and Greeks, as well as the so-called barbarians, like the Gauls and the Spaniards. Since the end of the Sicilian Wars provides a natural break in the narrative, I think it would be beneficial to examine the other key players in the Mediterranean before the Punic Wars, since both the stage and the actors will broaden significantly in the coming episodes. Today, we will begin to work our way out from Carthage by beginning with North Africa and Spain. If you have a chance, I would recommend you to take a look at the map on the website since I will be referencing it during these episodes. As always, I provided a link in the description. Beginning with North Africa, in antiquity, the Greeks called all of North Africa Libya. The ancient territory of Libya roughly corresponded to the modern Maghreb, which includes modern-day Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, and Mauritania. As a side note, although Egypt is geographically located within North Africa, due to its close connections with the Middle East over the centuries, it has historically been considered part of the Middle East rather than part of North Africa. Although the majority of the land is desert today, in ancient times, it was somewhat more fertile due to underground water reserves which have since disappeared. Herodotus describes the land of Libya as containing numerous animals, including white rump antelopes, gazelles, buffaloes, 
hyenas, porcupines, ostriches, snakes with horns, and large land crocodiles. Despite the greater amount of land suitable for cultivation, Libya was still an arid region, save for a few richly fertile areas, and large salt deposits were interspersed throughout, which were mined in antiquity. To no one's surprise, most of ancient Libya was inhabited by the Libyans, ancestors of the modern Berbers. The Libyans were darker skinned than the Carthaginians and Greeks, but were seen as distinct from the black peoples further south, whom the Greeks referred to as Ethiopians. Most Libyans were semi-nomadic, the ones in the east between Egypt and Carthage herding cattle and horses, while those in the west surrounding Carthage tilled the soil as farmers. Beyond Carthage to the east, Mountain tribes eked out a harsh and unforgiving existence in the Atlas mountain range, which stretched from Tunisia to the Atlantic Ocean. The Libyans themselves were made up of countless tribes, but I will restrain my fondness for long lists by only touching on a few of the major ones. The Mackay and the Maxine are especially worth mentioning just for their unique hairstyles. Herodotus reports that the Makai shaved the sides of their head and let it grow long in the middle, very similar to a mohawk. Not to be outdone, the Maxine tribe shaved the left sides of their heads and let the right grow very long, a style that has apparently stood the test of time and made a popular resurgence recently, showing that there is nothing new under the sun, especially in fashion. Herodotus relates that the Libyans were by far the most healthy people of antiquity, and that, according to his Libyan sources, they were so healthy because they burned the veins in their babies' heads with sheep's wool, thus keeping cold humors away. In spite of this dubious method of ensuring health, there is no doubt that the Libyans were remarkably resilient and tough, able to cover long distances on marches, under harsh conditions. Libyan troops made up the core of Hannibal's veterans in Italy, and they proved themselves to be strong and capable soldiers. Rather than the searing of infants' heads, it is likely that the Libyans' active and strenuous life, coupled with the unforgiving climate, made them into such a hardy people. Three Libyan tribes merit special mention, so much so that I have labeled them separately on the map. The first is the Garamantines. Herodotus, writing around 440 BC, describes them as a very great nation, and they possess many cities along the northwest corner of what is now modern-day Libya. They were primarily farmers, growing dates, figs, and wheat, and archaeological evidence has shown that they had sophisticated underground irrigation tunnels to use groundwater to irrigate their crops. They were herdsmen also, and Herodotus made them famous by reporting that they raised a particular type of cattle whose horns were so long 
that they had to graze in reverse to avoid getting their horns stuck in the ground. Besides their unusual livestock, they were renowned for their warlike qualities, fighting primarily with spears, javelins, and shields made of leather or ostrich hide. They wore animal skins as both clothing and armor, as well as ostrich feathers for decoration, and they rode two- and four-horse chariots to battle. Herodotus states that they also used these chariots to hunt the cave-dwelling Ethiopians to the south, men who were the fastest in the world and who spoke in a squeaky language which sounded just like bats. The Garamantines did not reach the peak of their power until well into the 2nd century AD, by which time they had established a respectable realm which would last until the Romans put them down a century later. Another tribe worth noting is the Mari. These lived in the region that is now the country of Mauritania, and they were darker than the other Libyan peoples, to the point that the Greeks and Romans termed them Western Ethiopians. Living in and among the Atlas Mountains, the Mari were a stern and tenacious people, recognized as good soldiers who fought in the traditional North African fashion with javelin, spear, and an elephant-hide shield. They are mentioned by name as serving with Hannibal in Italy against the Romans. Like the Garamantines, they too would become a power following the Punic Wars, and their aid to the Numidian kings against Rome would allow Numidia to sustain their independence for a while longer. Yet their name is perhaps their most interesting legacy. It is from the Mari people that the term Moors came into use to designate the Muslim inhabitants of North Africa. Ironically, the Mari people themselves would valiantly resist the Muslim invaders to the last, and they were one of the last peoples of North Africa to fall to the Islamic tide in the 8th century AD. The last Libyan tribe worth mentioning is the Numidians. The name Numidians comes from the Greek word meaning nomads, and the Numidians practiced a semi-nomadic lifestyle, herding large herds of cattle and horses in the regions directly surrounding Carthage herself. They forged the most powerful of the Libyan kingdoms, especially in the waning years of Carthage. Indeed, the Numidians fought a series of bloody wars against the full might of Rome, proving extremely challenging to conquer and giving respected commanders such as Julius Caesar difficulty in bringing them to heel. The Numidians were primarily divided into two tribes, the Massacilli in the west and the Missili in the east. Although their names are so similar, Keep these two tribes in mind as they will play a significant role in the later stages of the Second Punic War, as well as being the prime instigators behind the Third Punic War. The Numidians were loosely organized around tribal kings who had a minor nobility of chiefs and warlords who acted as their advisors and bodyguards. During Carthage's height, 
the Numidians supplied her with expert-like cavalry, the famed Numidian horse. Riding their hardy and untiring steeds, ancestors of the modern barb horse, the Numidians were renowned for their horsemanship. They used no saddle or bridle and rode bareback, directing their steeds with a rope tied around the neck and sometimes a stick. Despite this lack of equipment, they were agile and swift riders, able to perform lightning maneuvers and run circles around other more well-armed or disciplined cavalry. The men were just as nimble and under-equipped as their horses. Most of the time they fought with nothing save javelins and a light shield and sword. Nonetheless, on numerous occasions they outperformed against heavier counterparts, usually due to their adeptness at skirmishing. The Numidians would ride right up to the line of the enemy, hurling their javelins into the ranks at point-blank range. If the enemy tried to pursue, the lightly armed Numidians would swiftly retreat to a safe distance. Once the enemy paused to catch his breath, the Numidians would turn and repeat the process. Such skirmishing could be a nightmare to a heavily armored Roman soldier who had no means of retaliating, for if he stood his ground he would be pinned by a hail of javelins, while if he pursued he would merely exhaust himself to the point that the Numidians could turn and easily cut him down. Under Hannibal, these tactics would be perfected against the more ponderous Roman cavalry and infantry, and the Numidians would prove to be a vital force in nearly all of Hannibal's major victories. By 300 BC, most of the Libyan tribes had lived under Carthaginian rule for almost 200 years. Besides those that served in the Carthaginian military or as agricultural laborers on the estates of the nobility, most Libyans lived on their own farms and pastures in rural villages, paying heavy taxes to the Carthaginians in kind. In times of war, the Carthaginians required the Libyans to pay 25% of their income from their towns and 50% from their farms in tribute something that would later drive the Libyans to rebellion. As I previously mentioned, in addition to taxes, Libyan dependents also had to provide Carthage with a certain number of soldiers for campaigns. Despite periodic disturbances, the Libyans overall proved to be able servants of the Carthaginian state, and though few may have loved Carthage, they likely accepted her as a fact of life and remained on good, if not warm, terms with their masters. The other major population group in North Africa would be the Libby-Phoenician settlements along the North African coast. The term Libby-Phoenician was one coined by the Greeks and Romans for the Phoenician colonies Carthage controlled in North Africa, such as Utica and Hadramedum. These colonies would be very similar to Carthage herself, funneling trade through the Mediterranean and tilling the fruitful soil. Some were doubtless ruled by the Carthaginian state directly through an appointed governor, 
but the majority seem to have been allowed to retain autonomy to direct their own affairs. This would be in keeping with the normal Carthaginian practice of reaping trade profits as opposed to seeking mere dominion, and thus Phoenician colonies would probably have been governed by a local council of merchant princes allied to Carthage. Nonetheless, despite this seemingly preferential treatment, Libby Phoenician settlers were seen as less than pure-blooded Carthaginian citizens, and there would likely have been some tension between the groups. Having covered other Carthaginian possessions such as Sicily previously, we now turn to a brief overview of the status of Spain around 300 BC. Similar to Libya, Spain was termed Iberia by the ancients, and the Romans also used the name Hispania when referring to the peninsula. As you can see from the map on the website, Carthage had a fairly large portion of the southern coast of Spain under her control by the time of Agathocles. Most of this Carthaginian territory would primarily be centered on large colonies along the coastline, many of which dated back to the glory days of Phoenicia. Similar to the colonies in North Africa, these cities would probably be ruled by an oligarchy of local elites allied to Carthage by treaty. Local Spanish tribes allied to Carthage would also feature prominently, who would provide a source of soldiers, goods, and labor to the Carthaginian state. At this time, there were a myriad of tribes inhabiting the Spanish peninsula. On the episode page of the website, I have posted a map from Wikipedia displaying the Iberian tribes and their territory. In the south and east, most of the Iberian tribes lived in villages or walled towns known as Apeda. The Iberians along the eastern coast were particularly urbanized and had large and well-planned cities, which were often surrounded by a stone wall and contained several thousand inhabitants. The size of these cities meant that the Spaniards often resembled the city-states of Greece more than the tribal societies of the Gauls and other so-called barbarians. Their local cities could be highly centralized and civilized, and these had a thriving industry and traded pottery, textiles, bronze and ironwork, and horses with the Greek colonies on the eastern coast and the Carthaginians to the south, primarily for wine and olive oil in exchange. Most of these Spanish city-states were ruled by kings or chieftains in conjunction with a council of aristocratic nobles from the surrounding countryside. The kings would rule through a kind of vassalage where a man would pledge loyalty and military service to a king in exchange for land or gifts. Below the kings and nobles would be the freemen who were farmers, herdsmen, and craftsmen, while slaves would be at the bottom rungs of society. Although the Spanish tribes often fought each other in an endless series of pillaging and raiding, they frequently came together in temporary alliances to fight a common invader such as the Carthaginians and the Romans. 
with their fierce and independent nature, the courage and cunning of their men, and the mountainous terrain of Spain, the Spanish proved to be extremely difficult to conquer, only succumbing fully to Roman dominion shortly before the birth of Christ. As we saw back in episode 2, Spain was extremely valuable due to its rich gold and silver mines, and many of the Spaniards probably participated in and profited from this trade. Yet the Carthaginians also saw Spain as important due to being a prime recruiting ground for the army. Tribal warfare was nearly constant throughout the peninsula, and the Spanish tribes were especially warlike and soldierly. Their arms and armor were so well crafted and utilized that they influenced the Roman war machine. Since Spain also produced fine, swift horses, their cavalry was some of the best in the Mediterranean, and the Spaniards specifically trained their horses to suit their own unique method of warfare. The Spanish horses were able to fully lie down and keep silent by their master's side, a quality which made them particularly useful due to the Spaniards' favor for guerrilla tactics. Though capable of fighting pitched battles, the Spanish excelled at laying cunning ambushes, using hit-and-run tactics, and practicing their own species of psychological warfare. Oftentimes, the Spanish would yell or clash their arms loudly around the enemy, even when they had no intention of attacking, keeping their opponents in a nervous state of suspense, which would slowly grind them down. These tactics were so widespread that the Romans, in frustration, called them concursare, meaning the absence of tactics. Despite this Latin censure, the Spanish proved themselves a capable and formidable people, worthy of the respect and admiration they received in antiquity. Curiously enough, in central Spain, the Iberians mixed with Celtic settlers from Gaul to form the Celtiberians, a distinct cultural group which melded elements of both Spanish and Celtic culture. The Celtiberians primarily lived in tribal villages, with fewer larger cities than their eastern counterparts, although they did hold some walled cities such as Numantia. These cities functioned similarly to their Iberian neighbors as independent city-states, who warred and feuded with each other when left to their own devices. The Celtiberians were noted for having several unique cultural qualities which made them stand out from the Spanish. The first was their exuberant, extravagant hospitality. The Celtiberians took hospitality so seriously that they inscribed metal tokens called Tessare Hospitae, which recorded acts of generosity and served as a reminder that divine wrath would fall on those who violated the laws of hospitality. Another facet of Celtiberian culture was their view that it was a criminal act to survive a battle if their chief died. Thus, the followers of a deceased chief would often continue fighting even after defeat became inevitable, and if they won the field, they would engage in ritual combat 
until no man was left standing. Unlike the other Iberian tribes, the Celtiberians often favored pitch battles to guerrilla tactics, and their ferocity was renowned in antiquity. The Celtiberians were widely admired as combining many of the best qualities of their forebears, having the courage and savagery of the Gauls, while maintaining a greater degree of discipline and cohesion similar to their Iberian neighbors. Fighting with finely fashioned swords and bucklers, the Celtiberians had served for centuries as mercenaries all throughout the Mediterranean in wars as far away as Sicily and Greece. Indeed, some Celtiberians had fought for Sparta and Thebes in the Peloponnesian Wars, a full 70 years before Agathocles' time. I intend to cover the Libyan, Spanish, and Celtiberian warriors further in the future when we discuss the Second Punic War, and specifically Hannibal Barca's army. For now, I hope this brief overview of their territories and peoples has been useful to give you a picture of what the civilizations surrounding Carthage looked like during the 300s BC. Next time, we will continue to move north to examine the fierce Celts of Gaul. Make sure to click on the links in the description to check out the pictures uploaded with this episode on the website. Also, make sure you are subscribed to The Layman's Historian on iTunes and Facebook to keep up with the latest news. Until next time, take care and read more history.